those gestural qualities that printed page strips from language come back in the dark. And on the radio. Yes. Well, wait, have we started? Um, sure. Well, uh, why don't, I mean, it's recording. Why don't I hit the intro and we can just keep going? Yeah. Perfect. If you're ready. Yeah. 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 Uh, hello and welcome to The Massage, a series of conversations on culture and technology. I'm Andrew McLuhan, director of the McLuhan Institute. Today we're speaking with Jerry Fialka of Venice Beach, California. Jerry, welcome and it's a pleasure to speak with you. Andrew, what a pleasure to speak with you. You know, your dad uh, was here in LA years ago. I met him at a church. Oh, did you? And and I, uh, I did not meet Marshall, but I was always happy to know that Marshall was in Venice, California, <laughs> at one of my favorite shops ever, where they sold like homemade art, like not bougie, you know, museum gallery art. Uh -huh. And you could go into this store and play with their rubber stamps and make your own art and walk out of the store with a new piece of art with rubber stamps. And I loved that. And the owner, a few years later, told me that Marshall came into her shop. And I wow. was like, wow, we shared that experience of, you know, uh, what I call grassroots down to earth art making, which I always felt Marshall was all about, you know, he was not highbrow, even though he could merge highbrow and lowbrow, he seemed to be a very grounded person. Yeah. And most important, Andrew, was that I was able to meet you and Eric another uh, for a second time up in yeah. Northern California at the Media Ecology gathering. And um, you told me the amazing story, which just resonates with me completely where at the end of Marshall's life, he had a stroke and he couldn't speak as clearly as previous. And you were a baby and he held you in his hands and you babbled to each other. Yeah. And I say, that's, you're one of the only per people who truly spoke Finneganese with the, <laughs> with, with the the human on earth who broke the Finnegan's Way code. <laughs> you know, these, these amazing yeah. statistics that I just found out. Finnegan's Way came out in 1939. That's the year Marshall married Corinne. Yeah. And two years later, he converted to Catholicism. And, you know, when I say that to people, having run the McLuhan Finnegan's Wake Reading Club for almost over two decades now, um, I say, well, Marshall McLuhan broke the Finnegan, broke the Finnegan's Wake code. They're like, yeah, right. You know, and it, it is beautiful how Marshall really delved deep into this, this thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was speaking to somebody earlier, a, a fellow poet in Atlanta. Um, and I was telling him about Finnegan's Wake because he'd never heard it. And I said to him, He's he's slightly familiar with Marshall McLuhan's work. And I said, who do you think is the number one? You know, Marshall wrote all these books. He cited all these authors. Who do you think is the number one author in work Marshall McLuhan cited across his, his literature? And I'll give you a clue. It's not Shakespeare. 
Um, and he was surprised to learn that it was Finnegan's Wake and James Joyce. Yeah. And that's the beauty. It's not just James Joyce. It is just Finnegan's Wake. No, yeah. I, it's better. It's more focused on the book rather than the perfect person, because, you know, the hierarchy is is pound L. Jerry, if you can hear me, I'm afraid we've lost you for a moment. Jerry, are you there? Jerry has left the building. He'll be coming back. <laughs> These are the vagaries of, of technologies. I'm sure he'll be right back with us. In the meantime, we have an interlude. Um, Jerry Fialka is, uh, as he said, he runs the Finnegan's Wake Reading Club in Venice Beach, which he's been doing for many, many, many years. Uh, one of the reasons I was excited to have him as a guest uh, and he's coming back in the room now. Jerry, are you with us? I am. I'm so sorry. Go. Whatever happened. That's okay. So uh, you, uh, you were at uh, the hierarchy from Pound, Elliot. Uh, Yates and Joyce. Yeah. Those four people are the authors that Marshall often cites as the big four for him. Yeah. But indeed, it was more so or, you know, as important as not so much a human but a book you know and as we know Finnegan's Wake is not a book per se <laughs> yeah. we think it is because you hold it in your hand and you look at it or you know however you want to read it on online or whatever but it's really a living organism because it's required to read it out loud with a group of people there you are and you're, you know, Marshall knew that because that's why he had these meetings in this little coach house in Toronto is like what he was about inspired me deeply is human in a room together, exchanging eye contact and verbal exchange. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very much um, looking forward to the resumption of such things. <laughs> Oh, goodness, have we lost you again, Jerry? Oh, boy. Well, it seems we have lost Jerry Fialka again. Something funny is happening in Venice Beach, California. Well, ah, oh, there we are. Hello, hello. That is sad. I've never had this happen in one year, cut off like that. So, well, that's fine. Uh, we'll we'll roll with it. We'll roll with it because if you watch uh, Jean Luc Godard is at ninety one, he's being interviewed for ninety minutes recently, and it's amazing because he just says silence, 
and the, the guy freezes. And whenever, anyone, <laughs> when it, whenever, whenever anyone freezes on Zoom, everybody starts yelling, "You're freezing!" And I say, "Don't, <laughs> don't." This is a key. This is a key master class right here. Don't yell, "You're frozen," because the audio is delayed and it will catch up. And as soon as you, everybody starts saying, "You're frozen," they they cover up the sound of the the person's words yes so you have to flow with it but the beauty when godard was saying that his answer to the question was silence yeah that uh you know silence is the loudest um sound in the universe is what Thelonious monk said and the gap is where the action is and marshall taught us that it's like you know, just take a deep breath and think about what we were just talking about. <laughs> well, exactly. but I, you know, I go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, because it is this uh, this phenomenon of um, probably the most important thing I've learned from studying Marshall is being playful, yeah, having fun. I asked your dad if 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 he could follow the word the with any word uh, that would summarize his life's philosophies, he said, the playground. And I says, what would be Marshall's? He goes, the playground. Yeah, and I yeah. mean, what a word, play and ground in one word. <laughs> and, and it's like taking things further. Don't just settle for history and say, wow, we can read all the McLuhan books and talk about them my inspiration from you doing these andrew you're upholding this tradition so beautifully and again transforming it and is that why settle for what it is how can we reinvent it how can yeah. we you know not regurgitate but come up with something new and just flip it into its opposite and and carefully make plans and then do the opposite. <laughs> well, it's, it's, as you say, as, as, as dad said, um, it's, it's a, it's the playground. Yeah. I, I certainly feel I'm speaking to you today from Eric McLuhan's library, um, which we call the scriptorium, which is now the headquarters of the McLuhan Institute. And it feels very much like a, a playground. It's a vital space. Yeah. Um, and that's something that uh, Eric and Marshall learned from Joyce and from Finnegan's Wake is yeah. it's, it's all about play. Yeah. And I, I think that's one thing, you know, it's, it's easy to make binaries, but you can, you can separate media studies people by how playful they are or are not. Uh, and it's, it's a good tip off that if, if people are, are too serious about it, they're, um, they're missing a lot. <laughs> Yeah. And again, that's like the, the most beautiful thing is how Zen, both your dad and Marshall are, is like, don't make value judgments. <laughs> and it's like, the, you know, it's, it, it's how we're going to cope with the academic media ecology people who are like, they don't even touch Finnegan's Wake. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're still probing like a half a truth is still a lot of truth. You know, you know, the thing about, uh, Top, talk about topical. You know the thing about Woody Allen and in uh, Annie Hall having Marshall say, "You mean my whole fallacy is wrong," 
And Woody told him to say it as a statement, whereas Marshall always asked it as a question. So the dude exposed Marshall to the world in a pop movie and he exposed him backwards. Hey, it's still he exposed him. <laughs> you know, he he enlightened people like, oh, well, Marshall McLuhan was in Andy World and uh, Annie Hall. It's like, wow. Now it's like they'll scold him like, oh, my God, how could he be in such a bad person's movie? <laughs> well, well, this uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, the MEA conference. That's actually uh, in 2017, um, summer of 2017. That's where I came up with the idea for the McLuhan Institute. That's when the McLuhan Institute was born. Um, so that's that'll always be a fond memory for me. It was also one of the last uh, one of the last conferences that that I did with dad. Uh, he died less than a year later. Um, and it was a lot of fun running into you there. Actually, you were you were on the same. Were you on the same panel with Dad for some? Yeah, you were, weren't you? Uh, I was on a panel with Andrew Crystal and a woman who scolded me for oh, saying that. so great to have ladies there. And they go, "You can't say the word ladies anymore." I says, "Okay, thank you for enlightening me." <laughs> yes, I was. I was there. <laughs> and <Yeah>. <laughs> that was. Uh, she did not appreciate your your humor. Um, Dad was there no. too. She goes, uh, I am not, I am not funny. No, <laughs> no. And but that there's became very clear. <laughs> there's room for it all. But that was great that we met. And, you know, that my other fond memory, Andrew, is when you told me on that long bus ride to San Francisco that you were a punk rocker and that uh, as the uh, concert ended one night, you looked in the mosh pit and on the floor of the mosh pit was a copy of Understanding Media. <laughs> that was amazing. That is like, how do you explain that phenomenon? You know, Frank Zappa calls it conceptual continuity. Uh -huh. and Marshall, Marshall called it complex clairvoyance. There you <laughs> it's not something you do explain. It's just something you have fun with, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I wanted to ask you this, this great line by Marshall. The artist is the person who invents the means to bridge between biological inheritance and the environments created by technological innovation. Like, wow, what a lot, a bunch of big words. But I love the word inheritance there because Andrew, tell me how much in your genes do you figure you got to pursue what you're pursuing now? Is it more DNA or more the environment you were raised in and you you know the beauty and strength of your family unit now of course it's both and it depends but what if, what's your in intuition say how do you explain that do you think it's more dna or more environment it's a good question um it's something i have and i do reflect on um, and the answer is, of course, that it's both. Yeah. Um, to which degree? I think, I think it's more than both. So DNA counts for something, not just DNA, but, um, you know, the fact that Marshall was into something and then Eric kept it going 
and then I'm kind of stepping in. Like there's something that carries along there. Um, and, you know, maybe it's encoded in DNA or maybe it's something a little more mysterious and a little less scientific, who knows. But there is a continuity and I feel that. Um, and then there's the environmental. Um, there's the fact that Marshall held me in his arms and we spoke to each other, which may have sounded like nonsense to other people. It may have sounded like Finnegan's Wake to my dad. It may have sounded like, um, you know, words of wisdom to me. Who knows? Um, but there, so there's the fact that I was brought up in this uh, McLuhan stew um, that was all around me as a kid. Uh, that counts for something as well. And then there's, there's myself. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm a poet. Uh, I grew up writing, composing poetry, thinking, seeing, experiencing, speaking, relating poetically. Um, and punk rock and music comes into it too, for sure. Um, so all these things combine together uh, to put me where I am and the position I'm in. And as you, as you suggested, uh, you know, you said some really nice words, but um, it's not enough for me to, you know, we don't need museums. <laughs> Certainly right now, we don't need museums. We need to to figure things out. You know, if anything, um, the situations only become more dire. So um, the best thing we can do is take what, what's been left to us and use it for all it's worth, you know? Um, put aside what's not useful and let's not sweat that because that's the small stuff. Um, but let's use what we've got and, and hopefully get somewhere. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm, I'm bringing everything I have, have to bear on it. Um, but you very nicely turned the conversation around, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I really, I really wanted to take one more step in that. And who else in that family? I mean, Marshall raised a lot of kids, a lot of great people in yeah. your aunts and uncles and all the McLuhan. But I mean, who else is carrying the torch on? I mean, you're the one, right? I mean, is that, I mean, I, I could tell you the story when I, I saw Terry at a book signing once in Santa Monica. And at the end, she was promoting one of her books. And at the end, I says, what do you think your dad is a manipian satirist? She goes, no one cares about my dad. And I was like, what? <laughs> and it was like, you know, I mean, I understand, you know, she wants to be her own person. And, and uh, you know, I mean, if you don't feel comfortable touching on that, but is, are you the only one really not just owning an estate, but carrying on what Marshall and Eric got rolling? Well, um, I love my family. It's a complicated family. Um, as you can imagine, growing up as a son or daughter of Marshall McLuhan and Corinne McLuhan was a lot. <laughs> um, it was a time, you know, I'm looking, I'm, I'm here, I'm looking at a photo, which I treasure, uh, and I bring this up. Uh, it, the photo is of Marshall and Eric. It's black and white. And they're standing in a backyard, I think, in Windsor, Ontario, uh, when Marshall was at Assumption College before he went to uh, St. Michael's at the University of Toronto. So, um, you know, mid-late 40s. And Marshall's wearing a suit and he looks like a professor of literature. 
and Eric's wearing a suit with short pants and looks like the son of a professor of literature. Um, you know, and, and Eric was the firstborn and he was raised to be the son of, of the literary professor. He was raised kind of to be mini Marshall, really. Um, and that's a lot to put on a kid. It really is. Yeah. Um, and it, it's funny, uh, you know, it's really after dad's death that I, I, I've understood a lot of things about him and his life and um, how, how parallel our lives are. It's actually kind of funny um, because we are very different people, but also at the same time, you know, Eric grew up and um, he, he kind of ran away and joined the air force. Uh, he, he enlisted to the U S air force as an American citizen. He was um, eligible for the draft for Vietnam. And I think, uh, you know, he was always obsessed with airplanes and models. Um, and he said, well, here's, here's a way for me uh, to break away from this and to go my own road. And, and Hey, at the same time, maybe learn how to fly airplanes. So instead of being drafted to the uh, army, he uh, volunteered for the air force. Um, and he got accepted and shipped down and he did his tour in the States. He didn't go overseas. He was actually, as he said, he flew a desk. He was in supply uh, on stateside. Um, and however, although he kind of attempted to get away from it, um, Marshall sent him a copy of Understanding Media when it came out, sent him other things. Eric ended up taking classes in his spare time and getting his BA and coming home and working with his father. And they decoded Finnegan's Wake largely together. Um, and, you know, Eric served as his assistant, as his co-author, as his editor, um, as all kinds of things. Um, he got his master's degree. He got his PhD. He did his thesis on Finnegan's Wake on the Thunders. Um, he ended up coming into it and, uh, and happily so, you know, uh, for me, I did a similar thing, you know, growing up, I didn't know anything about it. And then you get a sense that, you know, you had a famous relative and, uh, then for myself anyway, you start to resent things and want to have your own identity and you get into puck rock and you flip people the bird and, uh, you know, literally and <laughs> figuratively in my case. Um, but you get into it and a little, a little understanding goes a long way. You know, Jerry, yes. um, I started to read, I tried to read Understanding Media as a teenager, a young teenager, and I didn't get anything from it. And I tried again in my 20s, and I got a little bit more. And it was in my 30s, um, I was back here where my parents are, and um, I started doing a little bit of work with my dad. He needed somebody to travel with him. And going away with him and talking uh, and seeing him speak and listening I started to understand it made sense for the first time. And maybe it's because, um, you know, I'd matured enough to maybe be able to handle the stuff. Uh, part of it is also my dad was an incredibly patient man, very patient, such a great teacher. It's, it's really a shame that he didn't have more opportunities to teach. Um, he was basically uh, kind of, if not officially, he was kind of blacklisted from academia, the poor guy. Um, and so he didn't have the students that he really deserved and the students who deserved him didn't get him, which is too bad, but 
um, so I started to understand and I got interested because this is thing about a little understanding goes a long way. And then I understood a little more and, you know, time goes by and before you know it, you're hooked. <laughs> right. Um, because this McLuhan work um, starting to, to feel like you understand culture and technology is a very powerful thing. Uh, and so uh, I found myself here. So I didn't, you know, I didn't set out to, to take over and be the next McLuhan or anything like, I'm not saying I am that by any means, but I happen to be in the right place in the right time, I suppose, in the right body uh, to, uh, to do it. And it's, it's honestly, um, I started the McLuhan Institute because I looked around and nobody else was going to do it. And it, it had to be done. And if I wasn't going to do it, nobody else was because, you know, um, as far as other people in my family go, people have their own lives and they want to do their own thing. And I, I understand and respect that. Um, you know, my sisters love them. They're not really that interested. They support me so much, um, which is so wonderful that I have their support. Um, they're happy that I do it <laughs> so that they don't have to worry about it, maybe. Um, cousins, same sort of thing, as far as I know, not really interested. Uh, my uncle Michael has done an incredible job managing uh, the estate of Marsha McLuhan um, and Corinne McLuhan after she died. Um, so he's been a really great force there. Um, and I'm just uh, doing what I can. I hope it's enough. Yeah, dude, we, we are so happy that you've taken on this. And oh, it is a process. And the word student was so important that you brought up because, you know, this book by Barry Nebbett, and Maurice, who was Marshall McLuhan, is an amazing book. And, you know, you get that line from Marshall. For many years until I wrote my first book, Mechanical Bride, Moralistic, blah, 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 blah. And it ends with, I realize that artistic creation is the playback of ordinary experience. From trash to treasures, I, say, I ceased being a moralist and became a student. <laughs> That's what I always say. I'm just a student. And to go back to Eric and what you just said, I considered myself a student of Eric because once I established an email relationship with him, I would, in, in one of our meetings, someone would say something and go, I don't know the answer to that. I would just email Eric and, <laughs> and he would always send an email back. He yeah. had great communication skills. People establish these means. Okay, if I email you, you email me back. Some people... I won't get back to you. So you learn how people communicate. And Eric was always good. And I says, Eric, I want to do an interview with you. He says, okay, we finally arranged it. And I did it over the phone. And, you know, I wanted 90 minutes. And he goes, after 40 minutes, he goes, I have to go eat dinner with my family now. <laughs> and I thought that was so beautiful. I've got to get that. I think it might be on archive.org, but but uh, then I did the other interview where you were there with Andrew Crystal. And we talked to Eric about, the black. Oh, yeah. yeah, but but this is important what you said about being a student because that's what I felt Marshall was always and talk about being blacklisted. I mean, M Marshall was always blackballed out of everything. Yeah. And it's almost like, thank God, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, I feel for Eric, but I think Eric wasn't in my opinion, you know him better. He wasn't bitter about that. He was still yeah. a happy guy. And he was like, oh, well, you're going to have me speak here? Okay, I'll speak. And, you yeah. know, 
it, it's, you know, uh, honestly, he was he was happiest here in this building at his desk doing his own thing and not being bothered. Um, yeah. That's really <laughs> what he wanted to do. And yeah. it, he actually preferred not to travel and not to speak. He was he was really nervous about it, really. Um, he, he did it because, you know, it brought some income and, and that is what it is. But it's probably a, a good thing. Um, I can't imagine, actually, if he had gone the academic route. And because, you know, what a frankly disgusting rat race that can be. Um, I have a lot of friends who are academics and I feel sorry for them because, man, that's a dirty game. Uh, this this trying to get tenure and all that and everything you have to do. You got to publish, you got to write, you got to do this, you got to do that. Students review, blah, 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 blah. It would have been terrible for him. Um, oh. as, it, as it was, he had a lot of freedom um, to do the work he did to finish laws of media, to do media informal cause, to do theories of communication, um, project after project, while at the same time, uh, pursuing his own interests uh, in Egyptology and Egyptian art and all these other things. So, you know, things have a have a funny way of working out, don't they, Jerry? They do. And it's beautiful. Like you're giving the seminars or whatever you're calling workshops on understanding media through gray area and all that. And that's really that's the rootsy kind of stuff that we need. And if you end up a master class or some other means or, you know, we got to get you on Clinton and I, uh, we do the McLuhan mashups now. Yeah. Uh, and we got to get you on there. And we ju we're just having a ball mashing up McLuhan with all types of uh Jungian alchemy and uh and whatnot and and uh I gotta tell you about the being blackball a lot of academia is so great because uh I met this college professor once puts out a really good local magazine with Noam Chomsky and all these people and I goes oh what do you think of McLuhan he goes oh no one no one's yeah, you know, no one studies McLuhan, blah, 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 blah. And for an hour, he told me why no one studied McLuhan. <laughs> I go, the, the proof is in the pudding, dude. You're you're obsessed with it. I said, what do you think of Arthur Croker? Oh, well, Croker, blah, 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 blah. I can, you know, I can bring him up. But, you know, yeah. you know, it is, you know, the, uh, you know, Jonathan Miller's book, McLuhan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a copy of it here, uh, which yeah. was Marshall's. Yeah. Um, and it's full of his notes. Oh, uh, God. And it, it's hilarious because oh. <laughs> it's Marshall hitting back between the pages uh, oh. and telling, you know, all the things that he got wrong, <laughs> which is. Well, that's the beauty. We need that. That's what we need. Everybody, you know, on my interviews, people go, you're a great interviewer. That was a great interview. I says, well, give me some constructive feedback and kind of, you know, I, I love your praise and all, but you know, we want, I want something like, so when somebody does that, like Jonathan Miller, that's probably one of the most important McLuhan books to read. So we can understand right. hot and cool. All these people who dissed like Pauline Kael, diss Marshall and Richard Schenkel, and all, all these people dissed him. So what? That's good. That's what you're supposed to do. 
that's what you know that's what <laughs> that i mean it's it sort of sounds rude but it was like that's just what you're supposed to do when someone brings up finnegan's wake well joyce wrote the greatest book ever ulysses then he went a little too far with finnegan's wake I go, <laughs> that's the whole point <laughs> you know thank god you could recognize that so now what did that do to you how did it shape your behavior how can you cope with it <laughs> you know i wanted to um tell you um this you know, you bring up what you want, Andrew, because I'll just gab forever. But I wanted to bring up, you know, my book, uh, Strange Questions, Experimental Film as Conversation came out uh, at, in October of last year. And I started with uh, three quotes and I wanted and they're just short. And I wanted to tell you how it's sort of uh, transformed because this is a key word your dad, your, you know, Marshall taught us when people go, well, what humanness is extended by cinema? And people go, well, memory, or it will extends the eye. And I'm like, well, Marshall says it extends the foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, you're traveling. So that's transporting. So then you go into that whole debate Marshall had about Shannon Weber and he's like, they transport, but I'm into transforming. So wow. it's like this whole thing of flipping and understanding that we can embrace contradiction. We don't have to fight it and say, oh, my God, I contradicted myself. And so, you know, this whole idea is me interviewing experimental filmmakers and, and, and being that is the conversation is the experimental film. Uh -huh. So, you know, it starts with this thing of, um, you know, are humans more thinking beings or are we more feeling beings and we constantly say well you can't separate those they're they're intertwined but we invented two words thinking and feeling so we can if we want to go along with the etymology of each of those words so the first quote that starts my book is i don't know what i think until i've said it marshall McLuhan. The second quote is Joan Didion. I don't know what I think until I write it down. And that's amazing. Then George, George Duhamel, who Walter Benjamin loved to quote this George quote, I can no longer think what I want to think. My thoughts have been replaced by moving images. Wow. So, you know, that's the inner eye. We, we're, we, you know, most... Filmmakers, I ask, I don't know what I think until I, you know, they go visualize it. You know, that's the big one. But this woman, then I start my book with the line, I don't know what I think until I ask somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> so mine just goes to the people factor. Like, hey, I don't know anything. I'm just going to ask other people and get the, get the dialogue rolling. But there's this woman that I found, Francine Duplixix Gray, uh, this was uh, in the New York Times sometime in the last year. She said, Flannery O'Connor said it best. I write because I don't know what I think until I read what I say. <laughs> and she sort of summarizes it all. Well, you say something, then you write it down. 
then you think about what you said, but in the written form. So, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about because this is Marshall's whole thing, causality, but it's this phenomenon of why do we think and why do we feel in which one's dominant? Hmm. And, and and what's your answer, Jerry? I don't know. What I, <laughs> I don't know what I think until you know. I'll refer to the 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 great John Cage, who uh, who thank God Marshall McLuhan came along and said to him, "Why don't you do something on Finnegan's Wake?" <laughs> <laughs> and 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 John Cage said uh, when they asked him a question, "Well, what do you think, John?" He goes, "Well, that's a very good question. I wouldn't want to ruin it with an answer." <laughs> yes. But, well, but, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the, ev the evidence is 90% of people, I ask that question, they go, well, humans are more feeling beings. Uh -huh. And they usually, they, Andrew, they usually say it like this. I think we're more feeling beings. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of my friends, one of my friends, whenever I go around Robin, he goes, I feel we're more thinking beings. And, you know, Bridget Bardot trumps them all. She says, when I make love, I don't think. It's like, good luck, <laughs> you know? You, you know, you want to be involved in this. It's total sensual experience. Like, talk about sense ratio shifting. I mean, what your dad and Marshall taught me is sense ratio shifting. Uh, you yeah. know, effects precede causes. These things are so simple, but at the same time, they're simplex. Yeah. You know, Donald Thiel and in uh, Zingroni and all these guys, you know, Andrew Crystal, we're so lucky we have you and in, in uh, Cameron and McLuhan's New Science and, and especially Clinton Ignatov with the netizen that we're regurgitating this stuff and it's like garbage in, garbage out. We're trying to transform it. Like where, what can we do farther with this? Where can we go? How can we invent the fifth step of the Tetrad? You know, Andrew, I really hope you'll join us sometime because I mean, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now where uh -huh. we sit around and we do tetrads on whatever subject is hot in the news. Cool. So, so you know, a woman jumps up and tears a Confederate flag down and then everybody has their opinions as good, bad. And I go, okay, let's figure out how flags have shaped our behavior. Not the flag but the environment the flag has created. Not why we invented flags, but the environment it's created. And we do a tetrad on it. And it is so fun. These people, they just, I mean, we got a group of people that really get it. That's a, lot great. Of them, a lot of them are on the surface level. I go, we're not, we're deep sea diving here. Like yeah. one of your uh, uh, Marshall's cards. You know, the message to the deep sea diver surface at one <laughs> ship, yeah. ship is sinking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I go, we're, but if, if someone says a surface answer, we're going to do tetrads today on word. You know, they're going to say, what does word enhance? Well, communication. Well, that's evident. <laughs> you know, I want to know deeper, you know. So, but I, I'm not demanding it. I just I have this. I'm honored and privileged to have these people who get this game. That's, it, that's great. 
you know. Oh, you know, Paolo just came out with a game called The Medium. Which oh, is- I know <laughs> about that. Yeah, okay. I, I saw that. And I'm happy because anything to get this uh, yep. this ball rolling is good. But I mean, exactly. the beauty of the Tetrad is Andrew, my friend, he's a, you know, a great Hollywood actor. He does Tetrads with his eight and 10 year old sons. Great. And they get it, you know, and it's amazing because it's not that complex. Everybody uses it all the time in various ways. It wasn't like Marshall and Eric invented something brand new. It's been around for years, but they sort of consolidated it into a way of thinking that we can actually apply Mm -hmm. and maybe do what with it. I mean, that's like... Is your, I mean, isn't it all our jobs to make the world a better place? Like, Andrew, can we? <laughs> can we make the world a better place? Well, we want to think that, but is is there a moral compass and soul searching that can really happen? Or are we just here, we invent stuff, and we have to cope with how, what we invent? And some of the inventions are going to have services and some of them are going to have disservices. And how can we flip the disservices into services? I mean, it's sort of like a simple kind of formula that your family came up with (laughs) to save the world. (laughs) Actually, that reminds me um, when we were in California for that um, MEA Media Ecology Association conference in 2017, Another thing we did while in the San Francisco area was visit Facebook headquarters at Menlo Park. Did you know about this? I didn't. Tell me. Uh, Well, we have a connection there because my brother-in-law works at the Facebook headquarters. um, And we arranged for dad to teach a Tetrad workshop. Nice. Yes. Um, Which, to me, the end game for all of this one of the end games anyway, is to get this kind of critical work into the hands of the people who are shaping the technologies which are shaping us, right? To give them the tools to um, be able to analyze what they're doing. As Marshall put it, to think things out before we put them out. Yeah. Um, So I thought this was a great idea. Uh, you know, this is what we want to be doing. Teaching Tetrads to people at Facebook is what it's all about, right? Well, (laughs) well, it was a curious thing because as I've said, dad was a great teacher. He's very patient. Um, He was great at explaining things uh, and putting it into terms which, you know, people could relate to. But the workshop didn't go that great. Um, (laughs) And Again, it's only kind of recently that I realized I don't think he wanted it to go really great because I'm not sure he felt he would be putting those things into the best hands. <laughs> wow, that's he he he's so that is great. He what's that word? Sabotage. Yeah. <laughs> that I, could is, be, I mean, I could be totally off about that, but no, no, that's I, I'm going to spread that as a rumor that's true for now on. Well, it's just it's just a theory. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a great theory. It is a great theory. 
Eric um, gave was Zuckerberg there? No, 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 God no. <laughs> um, well, but, I've 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 wanted to do this with uh, Snapchat, and I'm trying I'm trying to do the same thing as a joke to um, get Peter Quadrino, who runs the Finnegan's Wake Reading Club. That's the one you should come to at least once in Austin. This guy, you know, none, none of these Finnegan's Wake people bring up your dad, but Peter does. And he brings up Donald Thiel and he brings up your dad's uh, book, Ten Thunders. And he's okay. like, Elvis. he is, Peter is really comprehensive. His pantheon. In, in Austin. Yeah. P Peter Quadrino, his pantheon article of everybody who's been affected by uh, Finnegan's Wake is immense. And your dad's. Huh prominent like he's in the top four or five like right off the bat but i've been saying peter you know and he has a job and you know he's not that happy with his job and, and i says peter you have to become a, a consultant to elon musk and zuckerberg and everybody on how finnegan's weight can help their business <laughs> now, it sounds ridiculous but that's exactly what howard gossage did to marshall he called yeah. him up and says Dude, I read your book, man. I, I can get you on the cover of Time Magazine and get you a gig with GM. Uh, yeah, I get you five thousand dollars. Marshall said, "Bro, go ahead." Right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you that know, is basically it, what happened. I know it, and I'm trying to tell um, tell uh, Peter. I will. I will be your Howard Gossage and get you there because I tried to do this with the kid who invented uh, uh, Snapchat because he's based right here in Santa Monica and. And, you know, he used to do that. He would go, he, first of all, he came out of literature. He came out of unbearable likeness of being. And huh. then, and then all he wanted to do was parody. He made it, he says, I'm in college. I don't want to work for the man. So he says, I'll do a spoof of Facebook, <laughs> you know, and it will disappear. And then all of a sudden he's a gazillionaire and he's trying to buy the entire town of Venice up and everybody hates him. And, you know, he, what does he do? He goes to a fashion mover and shaker. He goes to a music mover and shaker. He goes to, you know, a modern thinker. He says, what should I do? So he just didn't go to get all the tech nerds tell me in the accountants, tell me what to do next. So, you know, I don't know, I guess he's still successful or whatever. Snapchat's always changing or, you know, it's flipping into TikTok or Clubhouse or whatever new platform, all the power to him. But it is this funny thing that they do have this opportunity. And once in a while, these people are, I'll tell you a couple of the biggies who are, is Jerron Lanier, you know. I've talked to him about Marshall and Finnegan's Wake, and he's well aware of it. And he's the guy who says, you know, even though I helped invent all this stuff, I know we should be a little teensy insy bitty aware of how it's changing us. <laughs> yeah. If only they had these conversations before they went ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're asking a lot, Andrew, if they can even mention that after, you know, some, because you know, the, you, the pattern used to be every fifth person on Charlie Rose would drop McLuhan's name, you know, I love that pattern because it was like, they don't know what he's saying or what he really meant, but at least some kid might come along and, you know, discover him because, you right. know, he does seep into academia a little mm -hmm. because the artists, the artists and the poets 
have snuck Marshall into the world. And, you know, I know a major Hollywood director, Rian Johnson, he did a Star Wars, Ryan Johnson, he does Star Wars, Knives Out, he's done a lot of good films. He saw Marshall in Annie Hall and decided to become a filmmaker because of that scene. Then oh. his, his first short film is about Finnegan's Wake. So it's like, I got to interview this guy. But again, you go to Peter Quadrino's Pantheon article and he, he tells you Ryan's like background in, in the wake. But it, 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 he doesn't mention that, that uh, footnote about Marshall's appearance causing him to become a filmmaker because he walked into my favorite bookstore in Santa Monica, California called Angel City. And he said, saw a copy of Understanding Media in the glass cabinet, you know, some first edition and said, hey, that's why I became a filmmaker. So this is like, you know, not documented. I don't believe in any of his proper interviews on, you know, uh, press kits or, you know, it, the, the knowledge of that isn't known, but, mm -hmm. you know, we know how many people we've made list of all sure. the people who who've been influenced by there's a there's a couple list i have to send you that were made that is very intriguing how uh marshall updated and rebooted medium as a massage into users content and uh -huh. updated and rebooted global theater into the globe global village into the global theater yeah so there's a couple of these um, I'll send to you. Um, and, and it is oh, amazing. You. Yeah. And, and it is like, again, well, what, what is he doing? You know, not to pick on that filmmaker, but what is he doing different because of that? Well, <laughs> you know, it's still like Peter Greenway said, cinema is much too rich of medium to be left to storytellers. Huh. They're still, they're still filming plays I mean, I think it's in Marshall's book that I read. D.W. Griffith invented the contemporary, uh, the art form of the feature film. And it still sort of dominates the world in a lot of ways. Uh, Jerry, yeah. we're, goodness, I feel like we could talk forever and we yeah. don't have very much left because I like to keep this to an hour. Yeah, no, no worries. You 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 rope me in. But just to make that quick point, as Marshall said, D.W. Griffith carried around a copy of Charles Dickens in his back pocket. So all the history of cinema has been is filming plays. So go ahead. Tell me what's next. Well, um, I wanted to ask you and we could spend, I'm sure, another hour on it. But I wanted to ask you um, about Frank Zappa. Sure. So. I found online that you were Frank Zappa's archivist for 10 years. About nine and a half years, I worked mail order business, running his hot or helping answer questions on his hotline and oh. archivist. Yeah. This is pre then where Joe Travers became the official archivist for the last 20, 30 years, you know, and has done an immense job. But this is like early on. Yeah, that's right. Now I know I know very little about uh, Frank Zappa. I wonder if you can talk for a minute about um, how you see Frank Zappa and Marshall McLuhan intersecting, if you do. 
Well, I do. And it's an amazing because they're both satellite conductors. And I mean, if you go to Bob Marshall, Frank Zappa interview, it's probably the greatest interview with Frank ever. And Bob asked him about Marshall and, and Frank sort of says, well, he saw that probably that Tom Wolf PBS documentary. And he says he really didn't get anything from it. But he did list James Joyce as an influence in his first album called freak out but here's how they cross over they both want to understand how our inventions shape our behavior hmm. so they do it with suspended judgment so frank's making opinions but he's basically doing it as a journalist so what we think of journalism and Frank says this, you go to the Dinosaur TV interview with Frank and it's outstanding. He says, like, you're an investigative journalist. Say, well, that's what I'm doing with my music, you know, and you can, Frank did it with his musics and his interviews. Marshall did it with his books and his lectures and his talking, you know, to have both those guys sitting around talking would have been great. And they, they're trying to uncover the hidden psychic effects of the things we invent so that we can learn to cope with them. And how are we going to cope with them unless we see both ends of the spectrum, you know, that we can go to what I learned from Marshall, Pascal, mathematician, philosopher. In order to understand anything, you have to have you know this end of the spectrum and that end of the spectrum and everything in between. So you get the big picture view. So I think they were both pattern recognizers. Okay, let's recognize these patterns. Let's understand some, some kids sent Frank uh, Ku Klux Klan newspapers. Now he didn't say, Frank, you should become a Klansman. He knew that Frank wanted to understand why this exists. So how am I going to understand if I can't read it? He wasn't promoting racism. He was saying, oh, this exists. That's like, know your enemy. Your enemy is your best teacher. That's American Indians. And so that's the same thing with Marshall. Jonathan Miller's not his enemy, but he's like dissing him. He's giving him more publicity. He's going, this guy's really tearing into me. Why? Okay, now I can take notes and say why. You know, oh, he said this. It helps further the project grounds for deeper research and so you know i mean that's basically in a nutshell but i mean i can you can ask me more questions yeah. specifically or i'll just keep rambling well and, i i would like to wrap up with with this uh one thing which has kind of turned into i've done six or seven of these conversations now um and actually this is the one they're not uh, meant to be all about McLuhan or anything this one yeah. has kind of turned into that but um you know you mentioned about doing a lot of zoom calls in the last year yeah. um and one thing i've been asking people um because these are just supposed to be person to person conversations yeah um you sound you sound like you're doing all right uh and you know this last year has been really tough for a lot of people um maybe you could share um, what's gotten you through? How, how, how are you okay now in the last year? What can you give us as maybe a top tip or two for, for navigating today and tomorrow? Yeah. 
Great question. I appreciate it. Andrew, you're doing a great job carrying this on. And that is, how am I okay is basically back to the question I asked you, is it your DNA or is it your environment? I was raised by parents that were basically positive people, like the power of positive thinking. So when you when you start studying McLuhan, you realize you can flip a breakdown into a breakthrough. So I really don't promote this word. Oh, it's been a difficult year. I mean, every year is difficult and every year is great, you know, and I love that because people want to think what's well, difficult. Well, then that should increase your critical thinking skills and your strategy maneuvers to flip all those breakdowns into better breakthroughs. If they're, these are really bad breakdowns, let's flip them into really great breakthroughs. So, you know, it's a, it's this whole thing with cancel culture. Oh my God, I'm surprised you didn't bring that up. <laughs> and then all these things that have been blossoming and it just, well, are they, are they weeds or are they flowers? You know, that's uh, huh. A.A. Milne, the, uh, uh, wrote uh, a line that I saw in the back alley in Venice. It said, uh, weeds, weeds can be flowers once you get to know them. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how, I, like, how are you okay is just looking at how once I had to have my meetings, not with human beings in a room, eye contact and verbal exchange, I somehow, I was trying to figure it out a couple of days ago, who told me to do Zooms and how did it happen? They just, it happened. And all of a sudden for one year, I've done all these Zooms. And like I told you earlier, my meetings are better because people are more attentive. Some of my people are older. They have to drive an hour to get to the meeting. They don't have to drive. They huh. can, you know, they can jump on. We can do a 40 minute meeting do two tetrads in 40 minutes and go on with their day and they feel like it's a breath of fresh air so i mean how am i okay i have a, an amazing wife that i can hug and be together and share time with i live in a great town where i can actually get on my bike and ride down to the beach even though we live in this pandemic you know everything's closed down and now it's about to switch and it's like, oh my God, if it switches, I want it to remain the same. I want the Zoom world to continue. <laughs> like, like how many times did we get together, Andrew, since we first met in 2017? Okay, Andrew, come on. I want to come to Venice. Oh, great. Andrew, come to Venice. We'll hang out. Okay, great. Well, how many years has that been? And now finally, what caused it? The pandemic causing us to do a Zoom together. Whoa. <laughs> so I'm getting to interview a lot more people that I haven't interviewed because I flipped this breakdown into a breakthrough. So, I mean, the navigating is just how do you build up better um coping skills and strategies and plans and, and build up your playground because, you know, your dad taught me, Eric McLuhan taught me this great thing that the word fake 
and the mm-hmm. word fact both come from the Latin to make. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's, oh my God, fake news. I goes, fake news is not so bad. All it is is asking you to better your critical thinking skill. <laughs> yeah. And it's we used to call it a bullshit detector, and we used to call it reading between the lines. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, your dad wrote this email. I wish I could go back, you know, and and print out all the emails I got from your dad, but one email he said well we used to do that if someone threw a snowball at me i'd throw a snowball back at them and i don't know what the question was but i just have that as a memory in my head that you know um it's just the the beauty of the memory is that your dad was always there willing to dialogue you know even if it was just on an email like hey oh could i tell you one more little quickie told me sure Okay, he, um, I said, this woman came to my meeting and she said, I says, every human invention has services and disservices. And, you know, I realize I shouldn't use the word every because it, it's, it's a little too absolute, but I do anyways. And she says, well, what's the service of a torture rack? <laughs> <laughs> and so I wrote to your dad and he was so good. He says, well, if you own torture racks and you're selling them, you can get a, you know, uh, it's an income. If somebody buys them or, you know, he didn't say that one so much as, well, it could stretch your back. Oh. But if you, if you do it a little too far, it could torture you. So, of course, there's everything humans invent have service and disservice. But people don't want to believe that. I know people when drones started killing people in warfare, people hated drones. You know what? I have a bias. I hate drone shots in movies because crane shots used to be done with a big budget and it meant a Hollywood film. Now every filmmaker in the world could have these great drone shots and i'm like i hate that it make you know it's made it too democratized and i know that's a horrible bias <laughs> now the law you know you the 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 penny the the no budget filmmaker can have these amazing drone shots drones were used by laurie anderson in her concerts they have services and disservices but most people learned of them first by killing people in warfare. So they go, oh, I hate drones, you know? So it's like, how how do I, how are you okay? Is by, easily, by living and breathing Marshall and Eric McLuhan. <laughs> That's how I'm okay. And throw in a little Finnegan's Wake, Marcel Duchamp and Frank Zapp on the side. And you're, you got a, a like you said, you got a, a gumbo stew there. Wrong. Well, I, I I really appreciate that. I love what you said about uh, turning weeds into flowers. Oh um, yeah, that's I, no. I think that'll stay with me for a while. That's Jerry, right. I, I want to thank you very much um, yeah. for having this conversation today, and I hope we'll speak again soon. Andrew, I'm always here, and I hope you'll join me and Clinton soon on a M- Marsha McLuhan mashup. I'd love to. Okay. All right. Take care, Jerry. Go to the beach and say hi to the ocean for me. I will. The ocean is the ultimate solution. That's a Frank Zappa song. I love it. Thanks, Jerry. Take care. Thanks. Bye.